Okay, do you know it's Christmas time? Good evening to you. All right, there we go. Okay, there's life. How about that? Isaiah chapter 29. I'm in shock. I'm just recovering. Just lost for words. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in Isaiah chapter 29 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles that are marked to where we are this evening in the scriptures and just wave and they'll get one into your hands and you can follow along this evening and reading the word of God as well as listening to it, a double entrance into your heart and into your mind. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We come to chapter 29 of the book of Isaiah. We're in a section, uh, chapters 28 through 33, that are a series of five woes that the Lord pronounces principally upon Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. We remember kind of the context of what we're in the middle of. Assyria is the world-ruling empire. They are dominating that part of the world. They're a threat to all nations, including Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. But because the southern kingdom of Judah was just really locked into rebellion against God, their idolatry, their wickedness, they still wanted to be called God's people, but they wanted to partake in all of the sin of the world that was going on around them. And, And God was calling on them to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn back to him, to be his witness in the world. It was a very significant thing that they were throwing away wasn't just their life, but God has attached his work in this world to his people. So it's always a big thing when a, a Christian decides to backslide or decides to become a carnal Christian or to become a lukewarm Christian. And so God calls them back. They're refusing to do it. And so God says, all right, I'll use the Assyrians in order to judge you and to get your attention and to make you realize there is something harder in life than obeying my word and walking with me, and that is to not obey my word and to rebel against me. And so he's going to teach them that lesson. And uh, he didn't want it to go this way. God wanted to just protect them from the Assyrian uh, kind of threat that was to them. But if they didn't repent, then he was going to use Assyria uh, to judge them and to chasten them. I hope as we go through these chapters that none of us would be coming and I mean, we all, I want you to all come, but no uh, backsliding of heart would be able to survive these uh, passages and these exhortations uh, of the Lord. They're intended to really show us that there's no future in that. It forces God to put on a, a hat that he doesn't want to wear. He only wears it as is necessary in our lives. When he's forced to chasten us or to judge us because of our sin, he would much rather reward our Um, our obedience and faithfulness to him. But if he's forced into that position, he will love us as any parent will with such a child and love us enough to discipline us and get us back on the straight and narrow. He begins in chapter 29 by declaring, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. And so he now pronounces a woe upon the city of Jerusalem. And he refers to Jerusalem by the phrase, Ariel here, it's referred to as the city where David dwelt. Someone might say, well, how do we know it's Jerusalem and not Bethlehem, where David was born and where he uh, grew up? In verse 
uh, 8, as you go down a little bit uh, into there, you'll, uh, at the end of uh, verse 8, uh, there's the mention of Mount Zion there. And so this is a clear reference here, Ariel, to uh, the city of Jerusalem. The word Ariel has uh, two meanings. It can uh, mean the lion of God or it can mean altar. And the commentators are... Uh, split related to what it means and whenever there's kind of an equal split and there is a um, a cordial tone between <laughs> the people that are on the two various sides of things it means that typically you can build a case for both uh, both uh, interpretations of the name if the term means the lion of God then it would probably be referring to how the uh, children of Israel, the children of Judah in Jerusalem viewed themselves. We are the lion of God. We are the king of the beasts. We are invincible because of who our God is. And uh, so in much the way that somebody might, um, you know, pick a uh, mascot for a um, a football team or something. You notice that, the, for instance, the St. Louis Rams, hate to mention them as a 49er fan, but this year I can mention anybody I want as a 49er fan, <laughs> candidly. The disappointment, I'll tell you, it's very... Anyway, but you notice that the St. Louis Rams are the St. Louis Rams. They're not the St. Louis Lambs, as some 49er fans like to call them in previous years. So they tend to, you know, choose these uh, t- names like Tiger and this kind of thing in college teams and all and it's an idea of how we want to see ourselves how we want to see our athletic teams on the field of combat so to speak and so this was their view of themselves the problem with that they might very well have been uh, the lion of god but in their position of living a life of disobedience to the lord uh, this lion of god god himself was now Um, being forced to move against them and uh, judge them himself. If the word altar is meant here, then, and I think that the context probably is strongest for uh, this is the interpretation of it, it is uh, God is referring to them by altar, indicating that the city of Jerusalem was sitting Uh, so to speak, upon an altar, like a sacrifice upon an altar, and it's about to be consumed by God as a sacrifice uh, in judgment. And that seems to be the description that's here. Because of their disobedience, God was going to allow the Assyrians to come in. Ultimately, the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem, but because of the sin of the people, they will become a sacrifice to God in his judgment, so to speak, um, because of their sin. So he says to them, and year to year, let feasts come around. And the idea is that the feasts of the Jewish religious calendar that they were keeping every year, all of it was being kept in hypocrisy, and it wouldn't in any way deter the coming judgment of God. So God declared that despite their feasts and their religious activity, yet I will distress Ariel, and uh, there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel... I will encamp against you all around, and so it will be the Assyrian military that ultimately comes against Jerusalem, but God is using the Assyrians as his instrument of judgment, and so he uses his own, uh, the personal pronoun, I. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. 
You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice will be like a medium's out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. And so God wants them to know that when the Assyrians lay siege to Jerusalem, that it is him allowing that to happen. His will would have been to defeat the Assyrians and protect the whole land of Judah, not just the city of Jerusalem, but that, that they had gotten this far because they were instruments of his judgment and that this attack of the Assyrians would ultimately bring them down uh, so low that uh, their voices would come out of the dust and all. And it spoke, speaking about being lowered all the way down to the ground, it would ultimately uh, humble them and break them, which was the intent. In verse 5, God pronounces his judgment upon Jerusalem's foes. Just because God uses somebody to chasten or to judge uh, his people, it doesn't mean that the instrument that he uses is righteous. Sometimes he has to also judge the instrument. And so um, there, God may use a boss to say something in your life as a Christian employee that you don't like and you're not listening to what God is telling you about the kind of employee that you're supposed to be. So he gets this boss and the boss does this, but sometimes the boss will go too far and God can step in and then he's got to deal with the boss after that too. And so not sometimes we just think the only instruments that God uses to rebuke us or to train us or to chasten us or other Christians. But he can use uh, the saved, the unsaved. He can use instruments that are holy and they're righteous in their dealings with us or instruments that go beyond what they should. And that's exactly what uh, the Assyrians did. And so uh, in verses, uh, verses 5 through 8 here, God declares uh, to the Assyrians that their dream of destroying Jerusalem is not going to come to pass. Moreover, the multitude of your foes, <clears throat> excuse me, speaking of Assyria, uh, shall be like fine dust and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. God says, I'm going to use them to chasten you, but ultimately I will blow them away like dust and like chaff. It will be effortless. Yes, it shall be done in an instant, uh, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts, speaking now to uh, the Assyrian uh, Empire there. You shall be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And I read that. No, thank you. I'm not interested in uh, having any judgment that even approaches anything like that. The multitude of the nations who fight against Ariel even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. And it shall be as when a hungry man dreams and look, he eats, and, uh, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or when a thirsty man dreams and there he is, he's drinking in his dream, but then he wakes up and indeed he is faint and his soul still craves water. And so the multitude of all the nations uh, so the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. And so their dream of destroying Jerusalem, and they did dream of doing that, that it wasn't going to uh, happen. It was going to just be a dream. And so I think all of us have had a dream like that where you're eating something or drinking something. For me, it is um, taking off uh, in a game basketball game from the free throw line and dunking it right through something I never did in my playing days 
uh, but I've seen other do, others do it on television. And so every once in a while I have a dream, even after, I mean, I haven't played basketball in a million years now, but every once in a while I have a dream where I am flying through the air and some seven-foot-two center is between me and that rim, and I just about break his arm when I uh, dunk that thing. And then I wake up and uh, realize it was only a dream. Rats. My latest dream, I'm dreaming a lot of it. Um, I'm riding my bicycle. And 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 it's weird. He's just like a little boy, you know. And I know I'm not supposed to. I don't have the doctor's okay. And even if I had his okay, I'm giving it up. But anyway... Um, so I'm on that bike, you know, and my arm isn't quite healed yet, but I sure love the feeling, and I'm going down the descent and the whole thing. And there's a big difference between a dream and reality, isn't there? And uh, so often we have these kind of dreams, and they had the dream of destroying Jerusalem, and it wasn't going to occur. There was a big difference between their dream and what was going to become uh, their reality. And then in uh, verse 9, the Lord then begins uh, his rebuke of, of Jerusalem's spiritual uh, condition. And this is why they were in the rebellion that they were in. He said, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. And so he uh, speaks of the fact that the nation at that time was spiritually blind. And the idea is that he's talking in a military context. No one would ever want to go into battle uh, blind or drunk or deaf. Um, and, And so the idea is why in the world would God's people think because of, in the midst of the spiritual warfare that we're in the middle of all the time, that somehow we can navigate the spiritual warfare that we're in spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, and uh, spiritually drunk under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit in this world. And so this is the point that he's making. Pause and wonder. Blind yourself and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink, for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. And so God, again, military context, he talks here in verse 10 about the fact that he's closed their eyes, namely the prophets, he's closed, uh, covered their heads, namely the seers. In other words, God says, you're in a battle, you're in a difficult place, you don't want to hear my voice, you think it's so terrible to hear my voice, I'm speaking to you through my word, through other people. He says, I'm going to give you a taste of something that is more terrible still, and that is my silence. And again, in the spiritual warfare, the degree of spiritual warfare that we face as Christians today, the one thing that we cannot be cut off from is the intelligence that comes from above. So God is kind of saying in a, in a military context, all right, you don't want the intelligence. I'm trying to provide you with the intel in the battle that you're in. I'll just shut off the walkie-talkies and you can uh, go ahead and take care of yourself if you're not going to listen to me. And that's the threat that he was uh, making to them uh, because of the way that they were uh, disrespecting him in that way. The whole vision, verse 11, has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed 
which men then deliver this book to somebody who's literate. They can read, and they say, read this, please. And he says, I cannot because it's sealed. So they take the same book, and they deliver it to someone who's illiterate. He can't read, saying, read this, please. And he says he can't do it because he isn't uh, literate. And so the deliberate rebellion against God and his word, uh, God says it has uh, rendered you ignorant and illiterate. Uh, concerning God and concerning spiritual things. The first person here could read and chose not to. And so uh, the kind of person that uh, couldn't be bothered with God's word, not even enough to open up the scroll. They didn't even attempt to read the book or read what God was saying and and, uh, something wrong with the book, not with them. And then the second person is at fault. Here he's not literate, but he could have taken the scroll to someone who was literate in order to read it. In other words, they they were hiding behind any and every excuse that they could find for not listening to God and obeying God. And God was exposing the fact that there is no legitimate uh, excuse for that. And therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me and taught toward uh, their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men therefore behold i will again do a marvelous work among this people a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men uh, shall be hidden and so here is this um, uh, the heart of everything that was behind their disobedience and behind uh, their inattention to his voice and to his word and and the sin that was in their life. We have to remember that during this time in the history of Judah, religion was in high gear. The temple was open. The sacrifices were being offered. The offerings were being taken. I mean, religion was going on uh, all over the place. But when, G- when the, and Jesus ultimately quotes this, but when Isaiah speaks of the fact that these people draw near with their mouths but, and they honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me, God is saying that uh, all of the worship that he's receiving from them, by and large, was hypocritical. They gave one appearance at church, or they would pray the right things, they would sing the right things, but their hearts weren't engaged in. There was no heart reality uh, behind any of it. It was just outward, no inward reality. It was just religion. And so the Lord says it doesn't mean anything to me. You ever have somebody come up and say something to you? I mean, they may be a salesperson or uh, whatever or anyone in life, uh, maybe even a friend or a family member or a co-worker or something, and they come up and they begin to say something to you that you know they don't mean one bit. I mean, they're saying the nicest thing in the world, but you know for a fact they don't believe that about you at all. How much does their praise and their worship, so to speak, and uh, their prayer to you and all, how much does it mean? It means absolutely nothing. If there's no heart reality behind what's being spoken to an individual, that means nothing to a person. It's worse than nothing. And it tells us here, God is speaking through Isaiah, that God notices our worship. And he notices whether it's just something that is kind of learned behavior. I think that once a person's been a Christian uh, for longer than six months, we've already understand learned behavior. We already know how to do things. And we already know how to do things that in such a way that we're doing them, but there's no hard engagement in it, but nobody can tell outwardly. But God can tell. And, and so 
this, God looks at this and, and this was, of course, uh, uh, troubling to him. He notices our worship. He notices not just what we're saying or what we're doing outwardly, but he specifically notices to see if our heart is engaged in what it is that we're saying or what it is that we're doing. And Jesus quoted this passage in rebuking the religious leaders of his day, and he, and he did so for them elevating their man-made religious laws and traditions above God's commandments. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus said, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I always think about when I think about worship, I think about Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And the discussion began to uh, turn to where God should be worshiping. Did the Samaritans worship God in the right place and in the right way or the Jews? And, and uh, she was a Samaritan woman and Jesus corrected her and said, No, the, on this particular issue, he said, the Jews have it right and you are wrong in that. But then he addresses the larger issue of worship uh, because of his incarnation, him coming into the world. And he said to her, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, we're to worship him with our heart. Our heart is to be engaged in uh, in what it is that we're saying and, and uh, the worship that we're offering up to him. And our worship is to be marked by reality when it talks about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That word reality care, that word truth carries the idea of rat reality. There's to be a heart reality behind our uh, worship. And so here's their worship and their prayers and their conversations about God. And they were just words that didn't come out of that uh, heart reality. And God recognized that just to be hypocrisy just meant it was uh, just uh, uh, acting. And all of it was an affront to him. And uh, God wanted to let them know that, that they weren't fooling him in any way. And, uh, and so he reminds them, and it's in his book so that we can be reminded of it as well. It's something that is easy for any child of God in any age to fall uh, into. We're all capable of worshiping the Lord, and, um, uh, and our mouth is engaged, our hands are engaged perhaps even, uh, our posture is engaged, but our heart isn't engaged uh, at all. Have you ever been in a uh, middle of a trial or a circumstance that uh, has your heart really preoccupied with this trial. Sometimes raising children uh, involves that kind of thing or a problem at work or, um, you know, holding on to the house or whatever it might be that's going on in our life. And so we come into a church service and the, the situation is so big in our lives that the worship team begins to lead us in worship. And here we are, we're in the fourth song of their a set of worship songs before we realize that we've been just singing words and haven't thought one single thing about the words that we've been singing. Anybody ever had that happen? No, I know. I know they, they're all, they go to churches downtown. Um, we've all experienced that kind of thing. And so we know what that feeling is. 
And it is, you know, to be disengaged and to go realize, wow, wait a second, I'm worshiping the Lord. This is crazy. Put the, Lord, I lift this up to you. Now free me now to worship you in spirit and in truth here, and we're back on track. But it's one thing to have that happen, you know, intermittently in a worship experience or relationship with the Lord, I hope intermittently in our lives. And then it's another thing to settle into that as a reality. And that's what the children of Israel uh, had done. Imagine... Um, being in this, what they were being robbed of, they were robbing themselves of what we experience in worship, just as we've done here tonight, and being able to praise him, not just with words, but it comes out of our heart. We love to sing Christ is the Lord, just as we did. And, you know, they gave all of that up, that feeling. That's a priceless work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. And they were giving all of that up to be able to continue to engage in their sin. What a a terrible, terrible um, exchange that they uh, had made. It is interesting that the Lord not only speaks about this hypocrisy and the heart and the lips and everything being engaged in reality, but he said, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. And uh, that that the, the fear that they had toward God, it was taught. It, again, it wasn't a heart reality. It didn't come out of a personal relationship with him. And so when God looked at all of the worship and all of the things that they were doing at the temple and doing in their lives and all, all he saw was that here they were, they had allowed Judaism to be moved from the worship of God in spirit and in truth to now all he saw was these uh, people being obedient to God's word, to the law of Moses. It was being done to conform to men's rules, to their traditions, to their commandments. And so they wouldn't obey God and or grow spiritually, in other words, unless some man, some person was right on top of them, exhorting them or warning them or shaming them into obedience. And so their obedience to God during this time came out of a greater fear of displeasing other people or displeasing their religious leaders than in displeasing uh, the Lord and more and coming out uh, more than a, a love for God and a desire to bless God. And when I love God, I will obey his commandments and I will bo- obey his commandments without any kind of outward pressure of men because I will want to obey his word because when we love God, we're looking for every opportunity that we can have to express our love and our gratitude toward him. So when, there's, when you're in an environment, when somebody possesses a love relationship with God, then nobody needs to beat them with a whip to keep them in line. All we want to do is tell us more about what God wants, what he expects, what blesses him, and then we're eager to uh, do that. As Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And when we love him, we have a desire and a longing to keep his commandments in order uh, to bless him. It was Augustine who declared in the same vein, love God and do whatever you please. And that's the truth. Love is the hardest thing in the world to sin against. And when a person loves God, they can do whatever they please. Because when we love God, we'll do what pleases the Lord. 
Augustine, he went on uh, to say uh, in that quote, Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. And that's the truth. A love relationship with God will take a person into an obedience to God that legalism never will and yelling at people never will and exhorting them to death uh, uh, never will. There's a place for exhortation, but where uh, men coming up with their own ideas now for how to these people are not obeying God, they're not uh, being faithful to God, and so I'm going to hammer them again this week, and I'm going to yell at them again this week, and we're going to set up this law and this law, and they need to do this, and all this kind of stuff that goes on to try and get people in line with God. But if a church starts to resort to legalism, adding their own rules and their own laws and their own regulations and their own traditions to the Word of God in an attempt to get people to obey God and to walk with Him properly. When a church resorts to that, it is a confession of that church's failure to develop and nurture within the congregation a personal relationship with God that is so meaningful to people that they will want to obey God and want to walk closely with Him as a result. Legalism is always a confession of failure. Always a confession of failure. In a spiritual realm and in the realm of Christianity and even in the secular realm, as we'll get to in just a moment, when you have a healthy personal love relationship with God, you don't need any additional man-made rules to motivate us to uh, obedience to God. We'll want to do it in order to bless God and to do it in response to the love that He has shown us. And that's the highest motivation for obedience to God you'll ever find. To try and motivate people to be obedient to God, to walk the talk as it's given to us in the Word of God out of a fear of man, that is so infinitely inferior to the true motivation that God has given us, and that is to do so out of an expression of our love, our thanksgiving, in response to the love that He has first shown us. And it's the same thing that is true. Legalism is always an expression of failure. And it's true not only in the church realm, it's also true of a nation like ours. The more laws you have to pass in order to keep your citizens in line, then the greater the inner moral bankruptcy of the people that make up that nation. It's always a confession by our lawmakers concerning the moral decay of the citizenry that they now have to pass more laws in order to get the same moral behavior out of people that they once got out of a previous generation without those laws. If people's hearts were clean, then we wouldn't need those laws. By the way, in the year 2014... Between the federal and state governments of the United States of America, they passed 40,000 new laws. And to save their life, they will not be able to make a connection between the necessity 
of passing those laws and what it says about the moral decay of this nation and to get their attention to be, then begin to address that. And it's fascinating. I forget, I read an article a couple of weeks ago that gave the, a number. It was in the multiplied thousands of the new laws that will come into effect on January 1st, 2015. Legalism is always an expression of the failure of the institution that must resort to that in order to get moral uh, activity, morality out of a people. And, of course, uh, the danger of it, it's more damning when it's resorted to in a Christian environment, a religious environment, than ever in a secular uh, environment. In verse 14, when he says, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. And God is in essence saying, well, if somebody rejects God's word, you want to reject my word as the authority in your lives related to doctrine, and practice what we believe and how we live, then you're going to have to replace it with something. You will replace it with your own man-made ideas, and ultimately those man-made ideas, uh, traditions of men, uh, legalism, will ultimately uh, fail you. And so you don't want my wisdom? God says, I've got a cure for that. I'll leave you to your own wisdom, and ultimately uh, that will chasten you enough that you will come back to me because we are uh, children of God. Then in verse 15, he rebukes their uh, thoughts that they were, the sin they were engaging in was secret sin. So it's a rebuke of secret sin. He said, woe to those who sink deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? And so here they are probably a reference specifically to the rulers of Judah who were engaged in these negotiations with Egypt in order to come into a treaty with Egypt against the Assyrian threat rather than repenting of their sin and trusting in God. And they're doing it, they think they're doing it all in secret and God doesn't know and nobody knows uh, what it is that they're doing. So they're seeking to hide their plans even from God. And uh, the fact of the matter is there is no such thing as secret sin. We talk about that. We say, well, you know, do you have secret sin in your life? There is no such thing as secret sin. <laughs> I mean, I can keep a sin a secret from other people, but nobody can keep a sin secret from God. There's no, no secret sin with God. Every sin you and I ever commit, we commit right in the middle of his living room. Every single one of them. He is present, equally present, everywhere by his Holy Spirit. So there is no such thing as secret sin. Because God is uh, everywhere. And realizing that there is no secret sin and that God is, is everywhere is a great um, encouragement uh, and motivation for us uh, to live a holy life out in the open and places like this at church and then when we're all alone at home and uh, or all alone 
uh, wherever. And so God rebukes this idea of thinking that they are doing something that he doesn't see. And he informs them that they've got it all backwards. He said, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say uh, of him who made it to the potter, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? And so the idea God is saying that we can hide anything from God is a self-deception on the level of a, a, a bit of clay or a pot that suddenly believes itself uh, to, to be the potter who created it. And so that would be a crazy thing to believe, and it's just as crazy to believe that I'm getting away with something that God doesn't see. Then in verse 17, and some of you, this is a great relief for you, uh, Isaiah then begins to speak a little bit about the future millennial reign, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Just like Isaiah, he's like a lot of us in the room. You listen to so much of this, you know, related to the judgment and the things that they're doing wrong. And even though there's a lot to learn from that and for our own hearts to be searched uh, in terms of hypocrisy or in, in terms of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, relying on God, all of these are great lessons that we all need to hear about. But sometimes you can only take so much. Isaiah could only take so much before he needed a, a little bit of a break and to move into uh, a little bit happier subject. And, of course, this is the heart of, uh, of God who Isaiah was serving. And so he gives us this glimpse of a future day in Judah and in Israel. It had a near fulfillment, uh, ultimately, when the children of Israel would come back from their Babylonian captivity. But its uh, fullest and far fulfillment will be the thousand-year reign of Christ after his second coming. Is it not yet a little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. At this time, Lebanon was, had been devastated by the Assyrians. And so God said, is saying that in the kingdom age that Lebanon, even the worst of soil, will become fruitful and a great agricultural bounty that will mark that uh, kingdom age. And in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. There will, it will be a time of spiritual abundance. It's sometimes... The, the, the Bible is a very interesting book to me. It's not an easy book for me. Really, really not an easy book. I remember when I used to take math in school, and math was not easy for me. And I remember uh, taking algebra and geometry and these things, and sometimes I'd go home and the theorems, I so have to solve something in my mind. <laughs> and that's why they're theorems. You can't solve them all the way out. You have to kind of accept them as facts, you know. I can't do that, you know. So anyway, I would just stare at these things for hours as a kid. And sometimes I come to these things in the Bible and say, what in the world is that saying? And I'll just look at it and pray and, you know, go over it and over it and over it and over it. And then that day, everything's going to be absolutely uh, clear, just a spiritual abundance of the kingdom age. The humble shall also increase their joy in the Lord. The poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, the humble and the poor of the world, usually mistreated by powerful people, will be blessed by their treatment of uh, uh, Jesus that they receive from his hands. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. 
consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. All the people that historically have used their position of power uh, in order to take advantage of other people, uh, to be corrupt in that particular position. There will be none of that in the kingdom uh, age. And then verse uh, uh, 29, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, speaking of the Jews, Jacob, and it's talking about the man, the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons that lead those tribes. Jacob, uh, during this kingdom age, shall not now be ashamed, in other words, of the Jewish people. Jacob would have been ashamed of how the Jewish people were treating God, their disobedience to God, and, uh, but in the kingdom age, nor shall his face now grow pale, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst... They will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, the fear of God, the God and fear the God of Israel. These who also erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. So there'll be the end of all complaining and the end of all rebelling on the part of the Jewish people uh, toward God and uh, in that kingdom age. It reminds me of a story. One time I was in Israel and. Um, I asked the guide, I said to the guide, I said, what's the, what's, you know, they, they take people from all around the world, um, come to Israel to see the land. And, and so I said, you know, they, and these guides know multiple languages and, and all. And I asked the guide, I said, what's the hardest group that comes from around the world to Israel, hardest group for you to lead? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Jews from New York. This is a Jewish man. He said they complain about everything. The air conditioning is too cold. The air conditioning isn't on. There isn't enough water. Do we have to walk so far? And I mean, nothing is new under the sun, but it'll all be resolved in the kingdom age. And my guide friend will, if he's... There and leading tours, he won't have to deal with the same uh, attitude. We come to chapter 30, and God's woe continues upon the rebellious uh, children of Israel. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. So they're rebellious against him. What's the form of the rebellion that they took against him? They were taking counsel of other people concerning what to do in the situations and the crises in their life but they would not take counsel of the Lord, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they should add sin to sin, who walk uh, to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice. Think about that. They, They were not asking God for his advice in the situation that they were in, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Trusting in Egypt was not God's plan for them. It was not the advice that he was giving to them. They rebelled against his advice and came up with another plan. And uh, so important. I mean, it really speaks to us about the importance of, and and it's important not to minimize how great the trial was that the southern kingdom of Judah was in. 
This was frightening. Assyria, their military, was a frightening trial, about as big as they were going to ever face in their life. And, and so we don't minimize how panicked they became, how worried they became, how frantic to find a solution. But the importance when those same kind of trials come into our life, that God is our first resort, that he is the first one that we go to. What does the Bible say? God, what promise have you given me as a child of God in this circumstance? That's the advice. That's the counsel that I want to take rather than turning to anyone and everyone ahead of God. And when you're in a panic... When you're really in a situation, it's like, okay, God, sometimes it can be like this. Okay, God, I'm going to take care of this one. I'm going to solve this one for you. I'm going to use all the resources that I have, and then I'll get back to taking your advice and everywhere else in life. It's a real emotion, and it's a real temptation that we face in life. Maybe you're facing that tonight. You're in the middle of a great trial, and you've called in favors from all over the place, and you've lined up all of your resources, you got it all figured out, and if everything just works perfectly, I just might get out of this. But you haven't talked with God yet in the situation, and it's something we're prone to. And so tonight as we're going through the Bible, we have everything as you go all the way through the Bible, God is comes to you, pulls you up and says, wait a second, you can't take advice from everyone but me. You need my counsel in this situation. Drop all of your plans and seek me for my mind related to it. And I'll tell you, that's an important word and a good word uh, for these seasons we can find in our lives. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. You're on this path. It looks like, all right, we got Pharaoh. We got our military. Looks like we got enough money, put it together, pulled it here, and then we'll do this. All right, it's all going to work out. God says it isn't going to work out. The only thing that's going to work out is knowing that I'm in the middle of God's will. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. You're going to become ashamed of the fact you ever put trust in him. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes are at Zoan, and his ambassadors come to Hanes. And this his refers to Judah. Judah has sent ambassadors to Egypt, loaded down with money and tribute in order to pay for Egypt's assistance um, in defending them against Assyria. God is in heaven. He's watching all of it. And he's describing these ambassadors going from Judah into Egypt, into uh, Zoan and Hanes, one at the north and one at the south of Judah. He says, they were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be of help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south. And here God is watching this group of of, uh, ambassadors taking this tribute to Egypt in order to enter into a a mutual defense uh, pact with them. He's watching them cross this difficult terrain filled with wild animals. And as he observes it, he speaks to the situation through a land of trouble and anguish 
from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. I don't like serpents in general. I don't like the ones that fly and the fiery ones either. And so talking about kind of the wildlife that was in this uh, desert region that they were crossing, they will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. He's watching them carry all this wealth to Egypt to a people who shall not profit. This has got to just kill God. God is looking at them spending all of their money to find help in Egypt, in the world, when God has been telling them for the longest time, I will do it for free. I'm your God. I love you. I've given you promises that if you walk with me and you walk close to me, that these enemies will not have any ability to fight against you and be victorious. Here's God. It's killing him. They are paying for what he would do in an instant for free in their life. And again, it's a good word in any of our hearts tonight if we are ignoring him and his help in any particular situation that we're in the middle of. For the Egyptians shall help uh, in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shebeth. And so uh, Rahab was a, a mythological kind of dragon that had been adopted by Egypt as one of their many gods that they worshipped. And it came ultimately to be one of the names in the Old Testament for Egypt. And so he said, yeah, this is what Egypt is going to be to you. Uh, Rahab Hem Shebeth, which means uh, Egypt the do-nothing. When you finally need her, you're going to find she can't help you one bit. And ultimately, when Assyria did invade Judah, Egypt did attempt to come to her help, but they were defeated by the Assyrians. And so now go and uh, write it before them on a tablet, and God be, uh, deals with Judah's despising of his word and of his prophets, which was at the core of their religious apostasy. He said, now go write it before them on a tablet, note it on a scroll, that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. I want this warning written down, God says, so that later on when all of this comes to pass and they say, why didn't you tell me? I will tell to them, it is right there in the scroll. I warned you over and over again that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, a seer was someone who spoke for God, do not see. They demanded that the seers stop giving them revelation from God, especially the call to repent. They said to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. They're saying to uh, God's servants, stop operating in your call as seers and prophets and spokespersons for God. Uh, stop, cease all of that, cease being obedient to God. And then finally, as if it couldn't get any worse, they said, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. In other words, stop talking about God so much. We don't want to hear about God anymore. We don't want to hear the truth from God. We want you to speak lies to us and speak smooth things to us. And therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you 
like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And so God was warning the children of Judah, this is going to end up in a disaster. It's going to end up in catastrophe. They were saying to God, we don't want to listen to you. We don't want you to hear your truth. And the problem is, is that uh, facts are stubborn things and truth is a stubborn thing. And what God was saying was ultimately going to come to pass. If they didn't repent, Egypt was going to fail uh, them. And so God likened the fact that they were saying, don't listen to me. I mean, don't speak to us anymore. Just speak lies to us. Speak what we want to hear. God was saying, but that doesn't change your reality. That doesn't change the danger that you're in by not trusting in me. And he said, it's like a person standing underneath a great high wall that has a huge crack in it or a big bulge in it, that wall is going to come down ultimately, and when it does, it's going to do great damage to anyone that's found under it. He's saying Egypt is going to fail you, Judah is going to be under that failure, and it's going to create a lot of damage for you. And he's warning them that there's consequences to rejecting his word, that reality is coming, and ignoring that reality isn't going to change things. They needed to listen to God and obey him. He also likened the failure to listen to the Lord as a, like a pot, uh, it, Judah being broken like a, a pot uh, at the hand of, uh, of uh, the potter. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, and so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or, or to take water from the cistern. God said the judgment is going to be so great that it's coming into the land of Judah, that it's going to be, it, it, Judah's going to be broken, though Jerusalem is not going to be conquered. It's going to be so broken, it'll be like a pot that gets broken, and you can't even find a little four-by-four four piece left of it to pull the ashes out of, of the fireplace when you want to do that. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, he tells them, here's the solution to the craziness of your decision-making in trusting in someone other than me. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. He says in returning, returning and rest, he calls on them to repent. Repent from the direction that you're going in. The word repent means to have a change of mind about my situation and what I'm doing in it that results in a change of direction. So he says, turn from the direction that you're going and putting trust in Egypt. Put your trust in me. He said, and, in, and then rest. Don't strive. Don't come up with any more plans. Trust in me. Rest in me. Be quiet. Be confident in me. Have a confident faith in me. And that will be your strength. That was the solution to all of their striving. Return to me and just trust in me and wait and see what I will do. That was the solution for them. And it's the solution for the same kind of situation that we can find ourselves in today. But he declared their response to it. He knew it ahead of time. But you would not. And you said, no, we will flee on horses. And Egypt, of course, supplied Judah with their horses. So we've got horses from Egypt. We're going to be able to take care of ourselves. And the Lord said, therefore, you shall flee. Uh, you'll use those horses to flee in retreat from the Assyrians. And we will ride on swift horses, they were declaring. And God said, therefore, those who pursue you 
shall be swift. And the idea is swifter still. All your horses, all your armaments, all your things that you're getting from Egypt, uh, none of them are going to help you. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. This was a complete inversion of the promise that God had given in the law of Moses that if they were obedient to him, uh, a thousand of their enemy would flee from a single uh, Jew. And here things get turned around because of their disobedience. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee until your left is a pole on the top of a mountain pole on the top of a mountain the idea is looking at an evergreen on a mountaintop that's been shorn of all of its limbs you're going to be exposed and left with nothing and as a banner on a hill in other words they were going to be their their uh, uh, lesson of this season in their history was going to be a lesson to the whole world uh, of the folly of trusting in anyone other than god and therefore the lord will wait that he may be gracious to you beautiful verse in the Bible is it in its immediate context it speaks about the fact that God seeing them in this place this rebellious place God knew it would have to all play out but he said I will wait Uh, his children are his children he never disowns them and so he says I will wait until this repentance occurs and down the road and then I will have the opportunity to be gracious to you once again and this is a beautiful uh, revelation of the heart of the father all he wanted to do was be gracious to them that's all he wanted to do was to be gracious to them to bless them that's what fathers are like and he's a heavenly father we're evil in comparison to him the worst thing that a child can ever do to a father like this and, and an even in, in, in terms of a, a, a good human father is to live their life in such a way that that father has to pull back his blessings and isn't able to bless that child. And the worst thing that a child of God can ever do to God is to uh, begin to live a life that is so disobedient that God isn't able to express and to pour out all of the blessings upon our life that he desires to this is a terrible thing that they did to him but god said i'm going to wait for the day that i can be gracious to you again and that particular passage has a much broader application than just the strict context in which it is given whenever god waits in our lives to do something beyond our deadline it's always because he has something better in mind ever had god be late (laughs) all the time and you just look at it and God you know you've got the X and Y and anybody anybody can see it's got to happen right here if you miss this deadline listen I'm talking here if you miss this deadline this is what's going to happen this domino and then this and it's going to go like this and it's going to be a mess you just all, all I'm asking is you just step up and just hit it just do what I'm asking you to do right here in this timetable. And then he doesn't do it. All is lost. And then you wait. And you wait long enough to see what it is that he had in mind rather than what I had in mind. And then we realize that what he had in mind is infinitely greater than my greatest plan that I was laying out to him. Whenever he makes you wait... It is only because he has something 
better in mind that he is going to do. And that's something to hold on in those seasons where he makes us wait and when it's hard to wait on him to see exactly what he's up to. It is always in order to be gracious to us. And therefore he, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There's the encouragement. He waits to be gracious to you, but you've got to wait to see it. And so that's a good encouragement. For the people shall dwell in Zion, at Jerusalem. Uh, you shall weep no more. Uh, he will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes will see your teachers. And so here is talking about, again, a future time in the nation of Judah. Again, the far and fullest fulfillment is the kingdom age. It will be a time where God's teachers won't have to hide for their own safety like they had to at this time in Judah's history. But your eyes shall see your teachers, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, wherever you turn to the right hand or wherever you turn to the left. Again, great spiritual sensitivity during the kingdom age. Whether, where we should go in life, what direction will be as clear as a voice uh, speaking to us. And you, again, Satan will be bound during, there's a lot of reasons for that. I won't get into it because I'm running out of time. But, boy, what I was going to tell you was really something. (laughs) You will also defile the covering of your uh, images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold, and you will throw them away as an unclean thing, and you will say to them, get away. It will be a time where uh, people will uh, hate their former sin, hate their former idolatry. I like the strength of this whole thing where uh, they're reminded of what they once worshipped. Temptation comes to worship again, and they say, get it away from me. Get that away from me. And, and that, of course, is a spirit that we can possess by the Holy Spirit today concerning sin. I've invested enough of my life in that. Get it away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. As Christians, we don't have to wait for the kingdom age for that work of the Spirit within our lives. That's in us right now uh, in the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And then he will uh, give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. And so great material blessings during the kingdom age. Plenty of food for both man and for animal. Uh, Here we sit, you know, we're trying to be careful about how much we eat or how many sweets and all in the holiday season. And so sometimes we can, Christmas season, we can, sometimes we can look at this and uh, think, well, you know, what's the big deal about that? But when you read that in Somalia as a Christian, or you read in a place where 
They're pulling weeds and dandelions and trying to make tea out of them uh, today to get by. This is all very, very good news and very exciting. And there will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of water in the great, uh, in the day of great slaughter when the towers uh, fall. Probably a, a reference to the Battle of Armageddon, which will usher in the kingdom age because Jesus' the Battle of Armageddon is a part of his second coming. And moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be sevenfold. You don't want to be out in the sun uh, when the, the sun is seven times hotter than it needs to be uh, you'll, um, unless you have a really good dermatologist and a really good health plan. So... But we're told part of the plagues that will be uh, poured out during the tribulation period will involve uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, and this heat and these kind of things. And so it's talking about uh, giving us here a glimpse of the great tribulation that, again, will give way to the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's why Isaiah brings it up here. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days and the day of... Uh, in, in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and he heals the stroke of their wound. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with anger. Now this begins to speak about God, uh, his future judgment upon Assyria. And so the description is very, very graphic. He's burning with his anger. His burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation. I don't know exactly what that means, whether they're quivering or what. I just never, I never want to meet God in this kind of a place, and I don't have to because I'm in Christ Jesus. And he's borne all the judgment my, Jesus has borne all the judgment my sin deserves. But here is this description of God coming in his judgment upon uh, Assyria. His lips are full of indignation. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck. Uh, that's not a stream you want to be in, a swift stream that's moving like that, to sift the nations with the sieve of uh, futility. And there shall be a... Uh, a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. God will rise up to meet Assyria and defeat them. And with every uh, uh, blow of God against the Assyrian Empire and defeating them there in the land of Judah and specifically in their attempt to take uh, Jerusalem, it is met with a song of praise to God uh, because of his judgment of Assyria. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept in gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of God to the mighty one of Israel. So they're going to be praising God like they've never praised him before when they see Assyria uh, defeated. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And so if you can't play the harp, you can play the tambourine. It's got a, every kind of musical talent uh, represented here, abilities. They'll be just exploding in worship uh, of God for being so gracious to them in the defeat of the Assyrians. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. For 
Tophet, which is uh, referring to Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire, was established of old. Uh, Yes, for the king, the king of Assyria, uh, Gehenna, uh, the eternal lake of fire is prepared. He, uh, that is God, has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like the stream of brimstone, kindles it. And so uh, a pyre, of course, is this great mountain of wood that is put out, uh, ready to be lit. The body is laid on top of it, and somebody lights the fire, and then the body is kind of cremated. And so uh, referring to the future, not only of Assyria, but also of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria at the time, that one day when he headed into eternity, which wasn't going to be long after this particular defeat, that he would be ushered into hell. And once he was in Gehenna, that there would be, the language is, is, is symbolic, but he's going to be in a very deep place in hell, a deep place of judgment, like his body's being placed upon this great pyre and that God himself then lights it. Uh, this was not a good human being. And the Bible speaks of the fact that um, it, 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 more than just it appears to be the case, that there are not only uh, degrees of... Um, higher and lower in terms of uh, where a person kind of is or ends up in heaven uh, related to our faithfulness to God and his call upon our lives. It will be wonderful for all of us that are there, but it also speaks of the fact that there are those varying degrees also of punishment within hell depending on Uh, the wickedness of the life that ends up there. Because of the wickedness of his life, God says, I've got a special place for him. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in chapter 31 uh, next Sunday. Let's stand.